So just to give you guys a little bit of a heads up, um, this morning we're going to be covering the last six chapters of Matthew, of Matthew chapter 12. Uh, in these 16 verses, the central focus, the main thing, the central focus of Jesus' teachings were, the focus was on the scribes, on the Jewish legal experts. These were the intellectual elites of the time. They were the ones who... Um, the scribes were the ones who studied the law and just interpreted it. Now, when I talk about the law, I'm talking about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Um, so that was their job. That was their role is to study it. So the central focus of Jesus' teaching in these 16 verses is concerning them. It's about them. It's, um, that's who he's generally addressing. Now, he begins by answering one of the scribes' questions about the greatest command. Jesus then poses a question about the scribes', about the scribes teaching regarding the Messiah. Next, he directly warns the people he's talking to about the scribes and you know, about their teachings and their conduct. And finally, what you're going to be seeing is Jesus illustrates the, distinctions, the distinction between those who serve God with hypocrisy and those who serve him with true spiritual devotion. By the time we're done here, I hope that the Lord will reveal to you that faith is developed and strengthened as you continually make it more about Him and less about you. Now, let's pray and ask the Lord to, uh, to speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, come before with Your open word, Lord, and, and ask You that and ask that you speak to us through it, Lord. May the words just come out alive. May they come out breathing, Lord. And may they just sink deep down within us, Lord. Give us wisdom, Lord. That's what we ask for. Give us wisdom to know you, to understand you, to see our faults, to see our strengths, to see our weaknesses, Lord. Lord help us to understand us more so that we can get rid of those things that are just junk, that are, that are getting in the way of having an intimate and true relationship with you. Lord, may we see that, again, this life is just temporary. It's so short compared to eternity with you, Lord. And that what matter and what we do here matters, Lord. It matters to you. What we believe, what we think, what we how we see others, Lord, matters to you. May we see how great you are, how greater you are than us. Minister to, us, minister to us right now, Lord. Speak to us. Fill this room with your spirit. Thank you, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be again in Mark chapter 12. 
beginning in verse 28. One of the scribes approached. When he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked them, which command is the most important of all? This is the most important, Jesus answered. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourselves, as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one, and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Then Jesus saw that he answered intelligently. He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God, and no one dared question him any longer. So in the beginning of verse um, 12, we saw that there's just a lot of debates going on between the Herodians, I mean the Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes are all coming at Jesus, basically questioning him, almost almost attacking him as with like spiritual baseball bats. They're just, you know, they want to beat him down. But each time Jesus answers them they pretty much they're, they're silent they 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 it shuts them down in their track right wh- right where they're at i mean they they don't have anything else to say and they they're really astonished and amazed by what how jesus answers now again as these debates were occurring jesus with jesus and the religious leaders it appears there was this one scribe who was actually listening to what jesus was saying Now, if you remember, the scribes were the legal lawyers who studied and interpreted the law of Moses. To get to that level of scribe, it pretty much took a lifetime. I mean, it it really did. If If you were young, you were pretty much a phenom. But for the most part, these were the intellectuals, the professors, the lawyers. Um, They were the top dogs, top lawyers of this time. so as the scribe is listening, it seems as, he's, as if he's comparing everything he's discovered so far in his studies, everything that he's discovered from just reading the first five books of the, of the Old Testament. He's comparing it to what Jesus was saying, to what Jesus was saying and teaching. And each time as he sees that Jesus is tested, I believe the scribe finds himself just awestruck. He's just amazed. He just has that astonished, like, wow, I was not expecting that answer. So rather than coming at Jesus, just like the other religious leaders, just like the other scribes, he wants to come at him with a different, with a different approach. He comes at him, he comes at Jesus with just one simple question. Now, this is a question that he probably already made a conclusion about through his diligent studies of the scriptures, of the Mosaic Law. So what he hoped he would hear, what he hoped he would discover, was if Jesus would come to the same conclusion he had. He asked Jesus, which command is the most important of all? And without even taking a second to think about it, 
without even taking a, a second to think it over, Jesus answers the scribe, this is the most important command. Tells him, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, there was a total of 613 commands from God. 613 commands from God in in the first five books of the Old Testament. Of those 613 commands, Jesus here definitively says that the most important one is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And that's where he gets this passage. He says that is the most important one. But Jesus just doesn't end by telling the scribe the most important one. He throws in a second one. He throws in the the second most important command. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. This command is found in Leviticus 19.18. He then summarizes it by saying, there is no command greater than these. Well, by the reaction of the scribe in verse 32, it seems like this was exactly the same conclusion the scribe scribe had come to. And it just blew his mind. It just blew him away. So right after agreeing with Jesus, he adds his own summary of those two commands. To love God and to love one's neighbor is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now I imagine Jesus smiling as he hears this. I imagine him smiling as he, as he tells his scribe, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You see, this was Jesus' way of telling him, you're on the right track. You're not far from understanding who I am and why I'm really here. It then says at the end of verse 34 that no one dared ask him any more questions. No one dared to question him any longer. Why do you think that? It wasn't because they didn't have any more questions, because I'm sure they did. I'm sure they had a long list of questions to trap him or to, you know. I don't think they just were tired of asking him questions. No, I th- the, the thing is, um, they began to realize that some of their own now were becoming convinced. And that some of their own now were softening their views about Jesus, and they were starting to be impressed by him. They were starting to really change their views about Jesus. And when that happens, what's the best thing to do? Hey, don't ask him any more questions. You're prohibited from just talking to him. Leave him alone. I think this was going on here. This is why they, they just they decided to stop asking him questions. What better way to, to turn someone away from somebody else is just Hey, don't don't talk to him. Let me ask you, what do these two commands have in common? What do they have in common? If you answered love, you're absolutely correct. What we see in these two commands is what God really wants from man is love. Loving God is priority number one. 
We're commanded to love him with all our hearts, with all our soul, and with all our strength. What does that look like? What does that mean? To love God with all your heart means loving him beyond any other love, beyond anything else you may love in this entire world. It's a complete affection. It's a complete love for God. That's what that means. It's a deep affection that is unequaled, undiluted, and unmixed. To love God with all your soul with all your soul means loving him with an intense and strong enthusiasm. This enthusiasm is like a blazing fire burning deep within you that nothing can quench. It's an enthu- it's that same enthusiasm when when you see your child taking that first step or when you see when you I don't know when you accomplish a goal that um, you never thought you would accomplish. It's an enthusiasm that makes you want to go out and just, you know, do whatever it takes to get there. You're just, ah, it's just like I said, it's a burning fire that, that just is deep within you. That no matter what anybody does, what anybody says, nothing will be able to quench it. To love God with all your strength means loving Him with every fiber of your being. It's calling on all the strength you can muster to express your affection to Him or your, uh, express your affection for Him. It's during those times that when you're at your weakest, when you're at your lowest, and you just feel like you don't have the strength to muster up that little bit of strength to fall on your knees and say, God, I need you. Lord, I need you. And you guys know what I'm talking about. It's just going that extra mile, going that extra, you know, that extra length, even when you feel like you can't. I read somewhere, if loving God with all your heart and soul and might is the greatest command, then it follows that not loving him that way is the greatest sin. I want to share with you this quote I read from Matt Chandler. He said, The universe shudders in horror that we have this infinitely valuable, infinitely deep, infinitely rich, infinitely wise, infinitely loving God. And instead of pursuing Him with steadfast passion and enthralled, and enthralled fury, Instead of loving Him with all our heart, soul, and mind and strength, instead of attributing to Him the glory and honor and praise and power and wisdom and strength, we just take His toys and run. It's still our idolatry to want God for His benefits, but not for, but not for Himself. Wow, what a strong statement. We ought to love Him with all our soul, with all our heart soul and strength. Loving God is the greatest commandment, but Jesus felt it significant to also mention that loving our neighbor should also be a priority. Jesus taught that our neighbor is anyone in need. This would include that liberal Democrat that you just don't get along with. 
that you don't agree with, that you're always arguing with. It could also be that conservative, you know, Republican that is just, you know, too prideful and too stubborn and too hard-headed. This could also be that person that you just don't get along with at school, that is just looking funny, that smells funny, that just, you know, it's just that weird person in school. It can be that person that just has a different lifestyle than you, that has maybe attractions to the same sex, but it's loving them. Those are our neighbors. You know, I, I, I sometimes put it this way. If your neighbor was Muslim and his house burnt down and he needed a place to stay, would you open up your doors to him? Or would you be like, nah, man, we only, we only help Christians around here. We only help our own. We only help Americans. We only help, you know. That's what loving your neighbor is. I mean, I can cite several more examples, but you I think you have an idea what I'm talking about. It's loving them, sharing with them, meeting their needs. And while you're doing that, the Lord may open up the doors for you to share the love of Christ. We ought to love them as Christ loved them and as Christ died for them. Because all those people I mentioned, Jesus died for them too. He just didn't die for you. He just didn't die for me, but he died for all of us. Now, our sins may not seem as bad as their sins, but the way God sees it, he sees it all the same. Our sins, their sins, are no different in God's eyes. And if he can forgive you for what you've done, if he can forgive me, for my sins, he can forgive them. If we're careful, if we're not careful, we can easily convince ourselves that being religious, being religious, coming to church, you know, serving, reading the Bible, um, listening to programs, um, you know, serving in, at the soup kitchens or whatnot, if we're not careful, we can begin to convince ourselves that that's more important than loving God or loving our neighbor. The truth is, and this is what it comes down to, the truth is a single act of love is more meaningful to God than a thousand burnt offerings. I don't know if you remember, I mean, in the, in the Old Testament, a burnt offering, and I'll just put it, I'll try to put it simply, basically cutting up an animal and just putting it in a fire and just letting it burn. I mean, one time when I was in Iraq, we slaughtered a small little, a small little um, sheep, and I remember the look it had, and I remember how hard it was to do that. And um, but I couldn't imagine a thousand of them. And still, it's not enough. This week, I read an article written by by Jim Bloom, and is in that introduction he writes, "The most loving thing we can do for others." is love God. I'm sorry, let me start over. The most loving thing we can do for others is love God more than we love them. For if we love God, 
we will love others best. He goes on to say, those who have encountered the living Christ understand what I mean. They know the depth of love and breadth of grace that flows out of them towards others when they, dis- when they themselves are filled with the love of God and all he has for them and means to them in Jesus. If God is not the love of our life, there is no way that we will truly love our neighbor as ourselves, for we will love ourselves supremely. I thought that was a, also just a great quote. Well, it appears Jesus isn't done speaking about the scribes. Now that they've left him alone, he now has a question for them. He now poses a question to them. So follow along as I pick up, starting in verse 35. So Jesus asked this question, and he taught, as he taught in the temple complex, how can the the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can the Messiah be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. He, was, he also said in his teaching, beware of the scribes who want to go around long robes, who want greetings in the marketplaces, the front seats in synagogues, and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher punishment. He asks asks us a question about the scribes' view about the Messiah. You see, the, the, the scribes, the majority of them, they had this view, they had this mentality, mentality like, yeah, you know, I, need to, I already know everything there is to know about God. I already know everything there is to know about the Messiah. I've studied it, I've learned it, I've, you know, I spent my whole, I dedicated my whole life. So there's nothing I don't know. There's nothing you can tell me that I don't already know. But Jesus challenged this thought and he wanted to show them that they may still have a lot to learn. The question he asked, the question he poses, was in regards to the scribes' teaching that the, that the Messiah would be a descendant of King David. The heart of this question is a quotation from Psalm 110, verse 1, in which David referred to the Messiah as his Lord. Jesus is asking how the great David, how the the wise and smart King David can describe one of his descendants as greater than himself. In that Psalm, in Psalm 110, the Lord is in capital letters, indicating a reference to Yahweh or God himself. What we also see in that psalm is how Yahweh is having a conversation with someone who is given the title Adonai, or Lord, capital L, small O, small small R, small D. In most cases in the Old Testament, Adonai is the supreme title for Yahweh. So in the Hebrew Old Testament, Yahweh, Lord, capital L-O-R-D, and Adonai, capital L, small O, small R, small D, usually refer to the same person, and that's namely God. 
Yet here in, small, uh, in Psalm 110, we, we find Yahweh calling someone else, Adonai. We find Yahweh, God, calling someone else, Adonai. Now keep in mind, David isn't saying, and if you look carefully, this isn't, David isn't saying the Lord said to himself, rather he said the Lord declared to my Lord or my Adonai. Clearly, he was thinking of two different people. Who then is David's Adonai? Adonai? Who is the sovereign? Who is the sovereign over the king of Israel? In Hebrew categories, that would be God. So it seems that God is speaking to someone who someone else who carries the title for God. Thus Jesus said to the scholars, What do you think about this? When Yahweh said to David's Lord, sit at my right hand, he was saying, be seated at the highest place of authority in the entire universe. Psalm 110 is a prophetic psalm. And David is saying by the Holy Spirit that when the Messiah had finished his labor in the world, he would be exalted to heaven and be enthroned at the right hand of God. But this still doesn't answer Jesus' question. How can David describe one of his descendants as greater than himself? In the Jewish culture, and actually in most cultures, even in the culture I grew up in, grew up in, the son is never greater than the father. You know, that's it, you have the father, and the father is always respected and is is the leader of the home, and that's who it is. The son is never greater than the father. So by that reasoning, as marvelous as the Messiah would be, if he was to be David's son, he cannot be greater than David. Yet David himself calls his son, my Lord, indicating that Jesus is not simply the son of David. He is David's sovereign. He is David's king. He is David's God. He is David's Adonai, the one whom even David must bow. One of the biggest obstacles that keeps people today from seeing Jesus as God's son and as savior of the world is their lack of biblical knowledge. Like the scribes, there are many people who claim to know the Bible. And I'm sure you've met many people that have said, yeah, I've read the Bible a hundred times, a thousand times. I've, I know it back and forth. You see, there are many people who claim to know the Bible but can't see. They can't see that the entire Old Testament, everything found in the Old Testament, all that points directly to Jesus. It points to Him as the Messiah. When it comes to passages such as this, like this one, like this one that Jesus quoted, they're often ignored, mis misinterpreted, because it's just beyond their understanding. They just don't get it. They can't reconcile, they can't comprehend. The reason people don't understand the Bible is because they're reading it with carnal minds. They're reading, within, they're reading it with an unenlightened mind and heart. Think back, before you became a Christian, 
and you ever made, and you made an attempt to read the Bible. I know I do. I remember looking at this big book. I mean, this this, this is bigger than other Bibles I've had on because the letters are so huge. But I remember reading, and I'm like, man, I, dude, it's too complicated. What the heck? Ah, I give up. You know, I'm, you know, and then I'd be like, yeah, I read the Bible. I've, I understand it. You know, I, I would make an attempt. I would make an honest attempt to read it. But I just, I didn't understand it. It was just too foreign for me. You know, I just like, I just like reading Shakespeare or reading, you know, the Iliad or, you know, something like that. It's just, it was beyond my understanding. So I'm like, uh, all right, well, I'll try again later when I'm older. Maybe if I understand it, you know, maybe if I get smarter, I'll be able to understand it. But even then, I still didn't get it. I still didn't understand it. It wasn't until the Lord opened up my heart, until He opened up my mind, until He opened up my eyes, as I was reading the Gospel of John, sitting there on my bed, that I realized, oh my goodness, I'm a sinner. And if I don't repent, I'm going to hell. As I'm reading it, starts to be clear and I put the book down and I close my eyes and at that moment I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior that was when I was about 20 years old yeah you know I experienced a lot and learned a lot from then until you know from that from now from then until now but had I not done that I still would have been at that place where it just would have been foreign to me. And I thank him, and I thank him now that as I read his word, it just makes so much sense. And, and, and okay, I'll, and I'll be honest with you, there are some things even to, that, that I just seems complicated for me. I haven't figured out the whole thing. But I know and I trust that as I continue to grow, as I continue to mature, as I continue to seek the Lord, he will reveal these truths to me that I don't quite understand yet. I learned from my experience that I have to search them out. I have to look. I have to, you know, I have to keep knocking. I can't give up. Those who read it with an unlightened mind and heart, the Bible, again, just becomes another good book with wise sayings. The only way a person can truly understand what the Word of God says is when his spirit, when God's spirit has opened up their mind and heart. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. And within there, and within that, those verses, in verse 11, he says, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of man that is in him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God Accept the Spirit of God. Truth is, you can spend an entire lifetime reading the Bible, but if the Holy Spirit isn't in you, if He isn't burning bright within you, if He isn't, that passion isn't there, you won't be able to completely understand it. I've read stories where past, even pastors that have been pastoring for years, been teaching it, Say, you know what? 
they, I've heard them say, it wasn't until I read this or someone told me this, it just became clear. And I started reading and understanding the Bible in a totally different way. If that's your heart, that's your desire, again, just keep searching him. Let that fire burn inside. Let the spirit burn deep down inside of you. The only way you can have the Holy Spirit inside of you is by being born again. All right, so, so as Jesus is capturing the people's attention, he tells them in verse 38 to 40, watch out for the scribes who make a great show out of religion, but are first on the, swing, on the scene to swindle widows. With their long prayers, they give a, a, an appearance of piety, but inside their only concerns were about position, power, and money. Because of this, Jesus says at the end of verse 40, these will receive harsher punishment. As teachers of the scripture, these men were charged with a heavy responsibility, but they had not fulfilled it. God charged them with the responsibility of teach my people about me, teach my people my word. But they failed. They weren't doing that. And Jesus saw that and just, I'm sure that he just bummed them out because he had so many blind people there, so many people that were just lost. You know, he mentioned before that, you know, they were like sheep without a shepherd. They had failed to lead the people in truth and had failed to serve them humbly. As Christians, we must be careful not to turn into modern-day scribes. If our motives for serving become other than pure, or our hearts begin to harden with pride, it won't take long before our actions and attitudes resemble theirs. To prevent this from happening, it's important that you follow these two, set, these two steps. Step one, never forget the condition you were in when Jesus Christ saved you. Do you remember where you were when you cried out to God? Do you remember the condition you were in when you cried out to him? I do. It was at my lowest point. And I couldn't do it any longer. I didn't have the strength anymore. I pretty much had lost everything. And I cried out to God. Lord, I give up. I surrender. I'm just scared. I'm scared what, what's going to happen next. And I, and I remember, he said, I'll, I'll figure that out. I mean, I will take care of that. You just follow me day by day. Take, take just step by step, day by day, moment by moment. Just follow me. Just walk with me. You know what? He kept his promises. He re and he restored. He restored my life back to me. And it was more than what I could ask for. It was more than what I can, more than what I thought he was going to give me. It's remembering. And I think back now and I, I'm like, I remember that time. And there's no way. 
there's no way I can ever turn my back on God again. There's no, I mean, unless I purposely just decide to, to, to say, you know what, God, thanks, but I'm, I'm done. I'm walking away. I mean, that is blatantly sinful, and I hope I never get to that point, and I don't ever want to get to that point. But what I'm saying is I have to remember. I have to keep in mind where I was and Christ saved me, and so should you. The step number two is remain humble wherever the Lord has you. Does he have you flipping burgers? Remain humble. Does he have you as a CEO of a Fortune 500 company? Remain humble. Does he have you in an awful school? Remain humble. You know, does he, you know, have you in a city where you're like, what am I doing here? You know, <laughs> remain humble. He has you there for a reason. He has you there for a purpose. And all you, again, all you have to do is just ask him and he'll, just, he'll reveal that to you. We're told in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Therefore God's chosen ones, speaking about Christians here, Therefore God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Know where you come from, where you came from. Remain humble. Now, after warning the crowd about the scribes, Mark records an incident that illustrates the difference between those who serve God with hypocrisy and those who serve with true devotion. Now, picking back where we left off, Mark chapter 12, picking up in verse 41. Sitting across the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums, and a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, I assure you, this poor widow has put in more than all those giving to the temple treasury. For, they're all, for they all gave out of their surplus, but she gave out of her poverty. She, out of her poverty, has put everything she possessed and all she had to, and all she had to live on. Now, I remember there were times I would, we would get to these passages in churches I've been to, and I'd be like, oh, man, he's going to talk about money, and he's going to talk about you know, I'm not giving enough or whatever, you know. And so I'm just sitting there like my heart's like beating a thousand miles. And, and I'm just like, okay, is it time? I mean, I got, it, you know. Um, but I think, you know, we have to understand it. We have to understand this particular passage in its, in, in its true context. And the perspective is meant to be, to, to meant to be seen. As Jesus is sitting opposite of the treasury, of the temple treasury, in the court of the women, you typically, that's where it typically was, in the court of the women, he begins to observe how worshipers were putting money into the, into the box, into these boxes. If you notice, though, in verse 41, Jesus wasn't checking out, or he wasn't interested in seeing what they were putting, putting in. He wasn't interested in seeing what people were giving. He was, it was in how they were giving and how they were putting it in. Now, as he watched how the wealthy were putting in large sums of money 
a donation of a different kind grabs his attention. It almost seems like he's, time after time, he just sees people, the rich, putting in large, you know, you know just wads of money, wads of coin inside the, the temple treasury. But there's this one. There's, there's this one um, situation, there's one donation grabs his complete attention. It says, A poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Now these coins, I did a little bit of research, these coins were called leptas. They were the smallest coins and worth only about one-sixty-fourth of a daily wage. That's hardly nothing. This is the amount that the temple authorities would give to the poor so they can obtain bread, so they can get something small to eat. He sees this woman dropping in these two leptas, these two coins, into the temple treasury. And upon seeing that, he's like looking around and he's like, guys, he's talking to his disciples, come here, check this out, look, look what's going on here. Let me. And, and they're looking and he tells them, this poor widow has put in more than all those giving all those giving to the temple, temple treasury. And, and I can, again, see that excitement in his, in, in, in his voice, and I can hear it. I'm sure the disciples were like, what? What do you mean? You know, we're trying to minister here. We're trying to worship here in the temple. And, and, but anyways, he sees that. And he tells his disciples this poor this poor woman has given more than all those than all those rich people that were putting in their wads of money. You see, the wealthy who came to the treasury box, they gave out of their surplus. They were giving out of the extra money that they had. But this woman gave sacrificially since she put everything she possessed. As this woman departed, as she walked away, she had no money to buy food. But she had the faith to believe that God would sustain her, that God would provide for her, that God would take care of her. She had that faith. There was no doubt within her. She said, I'm going to give. I don't know how I'm going to eat. I don't know how I'm going to survive today. I don't have a husband. I don't have anyone else to, to, to help me. But these two coins I have, I'm going to dedicate them to the Lord. She put them there. Jesus saw her act of piety and recognized it as true faith and devotion. I remember when Robin and I finally committed to set, to set an amount, a certain amount to tithe. This was several years ago. and. And before that, it was something that we always struggled with. How much should we give? What should we give? You know, and there were times, yeah, we would, we would argue and, and like, hey, you know, you, you, you're putting in too much or too little or, you know, you're, you know, you're taking away from, you know, we're hurting financially. But it wasn't, again, until the Lord just really spoke to us and convicted us and told us, hey, you know what? Um, until we saw in Scripture how important it was to Him or how important it was for us to tithe, 
that we sat down and we said, hey, let's just set an amount. And so we did. In the beginning, yeah, it was rough. It was, I mean, we, you know, it was rough to, to pull out that wallet and, you know, but we committed to it. And we told ourselves we're not going to be bitter about this. It may be uncomfortable, yeah, you're going to feel that uncomfortableness, and, but we're not going to be bitter about it. So we decided to just get, and, and now to this day, it almost seems like it's, you know, it, it was almost natural. Just like praying, it's just like reading the Bible. It's just like, um, it's just it's a natural thing that we do now. And we do it to honor God, and we do it because we know that it's more for our benefit. This story is meant to teach us that the amount of the gift a person gives is not the greatest significance. To God, commitment of the heart and sacrifice matter the most. The truth is, the truth is God doesn't need our money. If he did, what we would give would be more important than our heart in giving. Giving ultimately benefits us because when we sacrifice, when we sacrificially give to God, He sees it and is pleased. Now, I believe tithing is biblical and ought to be done. But it would be wrong for me to stand up here. It would be say unethical for me to stand up here to tell you and convince you how much you should give how and what you should give I mean I'm not your accountant I'm not your banker I'm not your uh, CPA you know I'm just here to teach you what the Bible says to share with you to comfort you to advise you you know but I'm not going to stand here and tell you Hey, um, did you give money yet? You know, did you give your 10, 20, 5 percent? I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm going to leave that. That's why I have the box back there. And I'm like, whatever you want to give, give. You know, give out of your just whatever's in your heart. How you give depends on the heart behind it. If your heart, as you're giving, is joyful, then don't feel guilty about any amount you give, whether it's, whether it's two pennies, whether it's a dollar, whether it's 500, or whether it's, you know, when you give, just, it should be done joyfully. It shouldn't be done like, oh, I'm gonna give you my last two dollars, I'm gonna give you my last, no, you know, if that's the case, then just hold on to it. The Lord does, again, the Lord doesn't need the money. You know, it's, it should be done out of joy. Now, what you give is between you and God. He's the only one who sees it. He sees it and knows if you're giving sacrificially or not. He knows if whatever you're giving, if whatever you're giving is a sacrifice to him. He knows the truth. He knows what's in you. He knows what's in your heart. Now, if I was asked, if I was asked, 
for some biblical advice or insight on how to give. I tell them to I tell them to take these four to to take these four points into consideration. And some of these already mentioned. Whatever you decide to give, do it cheerfully. It says in Second Corinthians nine seven, each person should do as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Give sacrificially. Number two. Like this poor widow, sacrificial giving will teach you to rely and depend on God to take care of all your needs. If you're giving your lunch money away and you're doing it joyfully, trust that He's going to provide for you. Somehow, someone is going to, you're going to get some lunch. You know, have that faith to believe that. You know, if you're giving away your, you know, your money to pay your cable bill, uh, you know, I'm sure, you know, there's YouTube, you know, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I mean, again, the Lord, the Lord will provide, you know, I mean, he will, he will meet your need. Give sacrificially. Number three, commit to what you've decided to give. Commit to it. Again, this is my, this is my advice. You can follow it or not, but set an amount to commit for a period of time. Say, you know what? For this period of time, for these next six months, three months, whatever it may be, I'm going to give 5% of my income, 10%, whatever it may be. Do it for a period of time. Afterwards, reevaluate your heart and then recommit. Reevaluate yourself as you're giving and say, after, the, after that time, and say, okay, can I give more? Can I, what's my heart behind this? What am I, am I, what am I trying to get or am I trying to, you know, what am I doing? Reevaluate where your heart is and then just recommit for another time. That's just, you know, my advice there. Number four, resist the urge to advertise what you're giving. I want to read to you exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. He says in Matthew chapter 6, in verse 1 he says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of other people to be seen by them. Otherwise you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound the trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues on the streets, to be applauded by the people. I assure you, they got their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You know, you don't have to play, you know, blow a trumpet and say, hey, you know, check out this, this Benjamin Franklin I'm putting in here. You know, I mean, it's, it's, again, it's just up to you and the Lord. It's just between you two. He knows. He knows if you're giving sacrificially. He knows what you're giving. Now, I want to add one more point to this topic before I move on and before I finish. And this, talk, and this is, a lot of times, this is misunderstood. There's a distinct difference between tithes and offerings. To put it simply, a tithe is what you would give to the church. It's what you would offer. This is what you're offering to God. It's what you, again, give to the church. Whereas an offering is anything above and beyond those tithes you give. Both, though, ought to be done 
without compulsion, and with a glad heart. Both of those, tithes and offerings, whatever you give. As I conclude here, I want you to know, if you want to know how well you're maturing as a Christian, ask yourselves this simple question. Am I striving to make my life more about him and less about me? The more you begin to elevate God above everything else, the more you'll also begin to see these things that matter most to him. Loving God and others, knowing and understanding his word, being authentic and sacrificial giving. The only way to start living more for him is if you surrender yourselves over to him. The only way to start loving God with all your heart, strength, and soul is by accepting his son, Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior. If you've never accepted Christ, if that's, you've never done that, you've never surrendered yourself over to God, in a moment, as we end in prayer, I'm going to lead you in a, in a prayer. If you're watching or listening, Maybe the Lord's been speaking to you. Maybe the Lord's telling you, surrender. Give yourselves over. Give yourself over to me. And I'm going to show you what really matters. I'm going to show you how great I am. All you got to do is just take that step. Take that step by accepting him into your heart. Let's pray. Lord God, you've shown us so much in these 16 verses and ultimately Lord we see just how great you are just how wonderful you are how amazing you are Lord we do we want to make our lives more about you and less about us Again, if there's anyone listening, anyone watching that just has never surrendered to the Lord, and you feel the Lord just calling out to you, and you feel Him pulling at the strings of your heart, just pray this in, your, in the quietness of your heart. Lord, I'm a sinner. And, that, and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. And I believe that he took on all my sins. And I'm so thankful. Lord, I repent. And help me to turn away from those sins, Lord. I Right now, I am committed to turn away from those sins. I accept your forgiveness. And God, just fill me now with your Holy Spirit so that I just may walk in your ways, so that I may just understand your word, so that I may hear from you, Lord. May this world fade away, Lord. And may you, may, I just want you to become all I want and all I desire. 
that's what you prayed and you prayed that in faith and you prayed that from the deep down from the deep recesses of your heart and welcome to the kingdom of God bless this next time of just fellowship Lord and may we just continually throughout the week just love you with everything that we say and everything that we do Thank you for giving us Jesus. In your son's holy name, amen.